I feel that being a man is about being accepting. It's about being vulnerable. It's about being connected to my full self. It's about embracing the feminine within me. Um, I like to think that I'm post-gender. And so for me, being a man is just being true to our true nature. Welcome to Leadership with Lisa. This is Lisa Carmen Wang, U.S. national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur and executive leadership coach. This is a show that dives into deeply personal stories from the world's most impactful leaders, transforming the face of business and culture as we know it. You'll learn powerful leadership lessons to help you become more passionate, purposeful, and powerful in your life. Are you ready to dive in? Let's do it. There has never been a more critical need for authentic, empathetic leaders who truly care about their communities. Leadership is no longer about being the toughest or the strongest. Quite the contrary, the leaders we admire most are the ones who are willing to be vulnerable, the ones who risk their comfort to share their own difficult stories in order to lift up others. After all, we're all human. We all experience the same fundamental emotions, fears, and desires. Instead of shutting out past pain, it's important to face and embrace all experiences as opportunities to learn, to grow, and to lead. Today's guest shares how facing his past pain empowered him to become the leader and investor he is today. Despite years of external toughness and numbing himself from emotion as a young man, he eventually learned that allowing himself to feel the full expression of emotion was the most powerful thing he could do. Today, Jacques-Philippe Piverget is a partner at Ozone X Ventures, a mission-driven venture fund investing in women and minority founders building world-changing companies. He has also participated in over $10 billion of private equity transactions. He has been recognized by the World Economic Forum as a young global leader and by the Council on Foreign Relations as a term member. I hope this interview inspires you to take ownership of your story and find strength in vulnerability, no matter how difficult it may be. Remember, you're never alone in your struggles. You're never alone in your pain. Welcome to the show. Why, thank you. It's great to be here, Lisa. I'd like to just start off with asking you how you define leadership. Sure. So thanks for the question. Um, I feel that leadership is equal parts complex, but in my view, mostly simple. And how I think of it is the ability to inspire oneself and others to perform in such a way that you're the best version of yourself. Mm. And I find that if you're able to do that and have everyone focused on a similar end, on their own volition, then that just leads to amazing outcomes. And to me, that's kind of the pinnacle of leadership. I'm not sure how many times anyone ever actually realizes that. I feel like maybe moments in our journey, we feel that happening. It's kind of 
being in a flow state to a certain extent. So the, the optimal leadership state is, is what I just described uh, in my view. So Jacques-Philippe, what is the best version of you when you talk about the best self? <sighs> For me, it's a place where I'm comfortable with all of myself. You know, it's uh, people often say kind of being perfect in your imperfections. Um, that is when I feel like I'm really being my best self. It's also uh, about being honest. Uh, and sometimes that honesty, it's, it's allowing yourself to be your best self. I think deep down, we all know that we have it within ourselves to operate at a certain level, but I think sometimes there can be fear of that greatness. And so embracing that within myself hasn't always uh, come naturally, even though I think I've always felt like I had a lot to offer and I've been able to operate reasonably well. But at times there was definitely more in the tank that could have been provided and for me, the greatest fear, one of the greatest fears is not operating at 100% all the time. And so, you know, your question even dovetails to my definition of success. I think oftentimes I'll ask someone, how do you define success? And they typically have it marked to some objective. If they achieve this, this, the other, then they're successful. And how I've learned to define success for me over the last several decades is about 100%. So if I give 100%, then I'm successful. And I find that to be the most rewarding over time uh, because the other scenario where it's finite and tied to something external tends to be quite fleeting and less rewarding. I feel that you're constantly longing for something you don't have and then once you have it, it's flat and you need to come up with another uh, way of being successful. Whereas in the paradigm that I've tried to create for myself, it's one where as long as I'm all in, then I'm winning. And, and the other thing, and you know, you can stop me at a point. Yeah. I, can go, I can go on. But there, there's a couple of things that come up for me. So the first, when you were talking about um, getting to the best self. So I think about that we have two versions of ourselves. There's the best and highest self, and then there's the small self. And many of us are, are existing in a way where we aren't living as our best and highest selves, but simply tolerating the, the small self. Um, it's easy to say you want to do something and you want to commit to something and then just never start or never finish. Um, and we're okay with that. We, we start learning how to tolerate procrastination. We start learning how to tolerate inaction as a result of perfectionism. And um, that, that's one thing that you know, I think about in terms of like what, what does that small self of yours look like in comparison to the best self? Are you living um, in that? Are you truly living as your best self? And then the second thing is that your point about going 100%. And um, this is a conversation that we had the other day around what happens when you try to put 100% of yourself into multiple things and suddenly you're, you're going at 500%. <laughs> um, and that potential burnout starts to happen or, or that exhaustion at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, first of all, 
I want to state on the record that I'm not claiming to have all the answers. <laughs> this is just my view of things. But the small self within me is definitely prevalent. Furthermore, I don't actually believe someone can be 100% their best self. What does your small self look like? So for me, my small self is where I'm not going at 100% or I'm concerned about what someone else is doing relative to what I'm doing. So I'm being a relativist instead of really just accepting that we're all connected and we're all in it together. It's not me against anyone. It's the collective. Comparison instead of connection. What's that? You're comparing yourself instead of connecting with people. Exactly. Exactly. And I, and I think that's a digression from the kind of person that I want to be as my best self. Um, it's where I'm actually thinking along the lines of competing rather than cooperation. And, you know, for context, and I think this is something you'd appreciate given uh, your experience in gymnastics. You know, growing up, I was pretty competitive, more in judo. I used to compete nationally and wrestling and things like that. And oftentimes, especially in kind of a one-on-one -on -one sport, the competition is very fierce. And I had that in spades. It was like a large part of who I was. I would cry if I lost. I, I didn't lose often, but it happened. And I would cry and it was just painful in my soul. And I was so heated before, before competitions. I, I typically look calm. I'm pretty calm. But if you touched me, I was so intense. I was literally hot. And so that's where I was kind of the first 18 years of my life. Mm. And so getting to where I am now, I think I've evolved and I've asked people about that because in, my, in the back of my head, I figure, you know, that person is probably still in there. And sometimes it, it comes up, right? Like if I'm in a really tough situation and I feel like I'm being attacked, it's almost like that person comes up and it's a completely different, sometimes it actually scares me. You know, that small self, it's in there. And it's just a matter of scratching the surface. Uh, but I found that over the years, it takes a lot more uh, for that small self uh, to prevail. And to me, that's part of the dynamic. That's part of the evolution. And it's the journey that I'm on as I try to continue uh, to become better and better. And the other thing I would mention, which I think is super important, and I think I've improved on is, you know, just forgiving myself, right? So I accept the fact that I'm never going to be perfect. And I think that's okay. And I have as basically part of my daily practice to just accept and forgive. And that actually allows me to forgive others. And so that's all part of kind of the dynamic between my small self and, and large self, if you want to think of it along those lines. Can you tell me about a moment in your life or an inflection point that you look back on and you've had to learn how to forgive yourself for, whether that was a, a failure or a mistake? Hmm. You know, there have been so many, it's <laughs> hard to... Uh, pick just one um would you rather personal or professional i would say the one that's defined you the most the one that's defined me the most um 
it's interesting because one of the greatest pain points is not necessarily on the cover what one would expect, right? Because I'm someone who's had many a challenge. I mean, I've literally been near death nine or 10 times, all types, and, uh, had business challenges. I mean, you name it, I've probably had it. <laughs> uh, but the one that comes to mind the most in terms of a great challenge and which partially defines and has allowed me to reinvent myself is probably when my parents separated. <laughs> uh, so I still remember it, I was three. And I had been very close to my mom at the time. And so I still remember the uh, stories she'd tell me at night and the songs she used to sing. We had just spent 18 months together in Haiti. I was born in New York. And then one day we were going to visit my father who was in New York and we were meant to all be together. And um, we spent a few days together and it was amazing. And then I woke up one day and my mom was gone. Mm. And I didn't see her again for like a year and a half. And you know, as mentioned, I've been near death, but I think for a three-year-old, it's more painful <laughs> to lose your mom <laughs> than to lose your life, like when you're 20 or something. And so I think over time, it affected me in profound ways. So... Was it a feeling of abandonment, of loss? Like, what? how do you think it affected you? Um, I think it probably affected my relationships with people over some time. Um, eventually, I probably had a good 15 years where I didn't shed a tear. So, whereas when I was very young, I was very sensitive and, you know, pretty emotional and things like that. Uh, but I had a good 15-year run where... I didn't cry and I was completely disconnected from certain parts of myself. And I think some of that is probably attributable uh, to that experience. And it's not until kind of, you know, the last 15, 20 years that I've, you know, pushed myself to reflect and think about it because, you know, in some ways, because you also asked how has it affected me, right? For good or bad. Um, in some ways, it can be beneficial to be disconnected emotionally, right? Because it allows you to power through. So I'm sure when you were doing your gymnastics, uh, the ability to separate the self from the feeling allowed you to operate at a certain level. So I think in some ways, I probably had that and I benefited from it. But in other ways, it can be a real deficiency as far as connecting people in a real way, having empathy and feeling and being able to put oneself in the place of the other. I think for a boy and a man, it's easier to get away with that. I'd imagine for a woman, it would probably be more challenging to have been like that than for me, because I think a lot of guys are probably just like that. Maybe, to not, maybe not to the extent that I was, but it's more accepted. But on a human level, now that I feel like I'm on the other side of that challenge, I can tell that it was a massive void. It was limiting. And even in business, like, yes, it's good and important to be able to conceptualize, think about complex issues, 
and be analytical. But the, a lot of the magic in business is about the interpersonal skills. It's about being able to connect with others in a way that's authentic and being able to provide value in the most meaningful way while also being able to derive that value and having, you know, creating symbiotic experiences. And I'd say for someone who has a void in the empathy arena, uh, that would be super challenging. And I don't actually think you could achieve the highest levels of leadership that we talked about earlier, or just leadership in business in the ways that matter most to me. I don't think that's really achievable mm. if one only resides in the head and is disconnected from the heart and spirit. Um, With getting to that point, because you said about 15 or so years ago, you realized that the way you were operating wasn't serving you and wasn't manifesting you in the highest potential and capacity that you had. What was the point at which you really thought, wow, there is a void and I need to do something about this? Um, so, you know, we often like to think of points where things happen. What I found for me is that it's often evolutionary and sometimes it's hard for me to even pinpoint why or how it's happened. So, the first tier I can remember in recent history, like the first one was probably about 10 years ago, right? And it wasn't the worst thing that had happened to me or someone I care about. But for whatever reason, I was at a place where different things had shifted and I just felt that pain more profoundly. And in that instance, it was a friend who was dealing with cancer and I felt her pain as she talked about it and it led to tears and that's natural and human. But if that happened five years prior, I would have, I think I would have still been thoughtful, but I'm not, probably there wouldn't be tears and I wouldn't have felt it in the same way. And so it's just hard for me to know exactly what, it, I can tell you some of the contributors to um, feeling more. So I think, there have been many instances in the professional arena where I could tell there was a disconnect in terms of what I was thinking and what someone else was thinking and not really getting kind of the intricacies. And, you know, having that happen multiple times kind of leads to something. Um, I actually think uh, my meditation and martial arts practice, even though I didn't necessarily go into it looking for emotional wholeness, but sometimes what I tell people is uh, whether it's meditation or martial arts kind of mindfulness practice, what you actually get is not necessarily what you're seeking. It's what you need, right? So the martial arts journey to a large extent is about finding that balance between the yin and yang and it's practiced through movement and fluidity and, different elements, but it's hard to become proficient without finding that balance, right? So at the highest levels, when one is operating, it's seamless, it's fluid. It takes a certain yin, you know, feminine energy in order to do that. Whereas when you're in the beginning, um, you're using a lot of energy and it's tough, right? So I think that also contributed to me getting to a place where 
I just started to feel differently and appreciating differently and gratitude exercises and so many things. And one thing led to another and next thing you know, I had tears <laughs> and, and I appreciate it. It's like, a, it's a blessing. Well, one, one term that you used that I want to point out is emotional wholeness. And it's almost interesting because you don't know, as you mentioned, that's what you're seeking. Um, but usually there's a, there is a realization that there's a void sure. if you're whole or you're, you're not aligned. Describe the feeling of that void, if you can remember, and how it was different from feeling the wholeness. Are you sure you want the, the real story? <laughs> because <laughs> when you ask the question, there's one, there, in this instance, there actually is one thing that came up. And what is that one thing? So I was in high school. Okay. And I was at a party and I lived in a very tough neighborhood in Dade County, Florida, in North Miami at the time. I was at a party with some friends and some people came in, like young people our age, and they were shooting. All right. At, at our height. All right. And these are things I'm sure that still go on in inner cities all over the country. And people were running for the windows and trying to figure out how to get out of there, which is the natural thing to do. Mm. And I caught myself being completely desensitized. I didn't care. And so I wasn't running for the windows. I wasn't scared or concerned. And I'm pretty sure I was the first person there was, there was a person who had gotten hit there on the floor. I'm pretty sure I was the first person to like walk out. And I was 17 at the time. This is a long time ago. I, you know, I'm not 17 anymore. But that was definitely a moment because I think shortly thereafter, I was reflecting because I hadn't always been like that. And I remember I was thinking about, I was like, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> like how can such a major situation arise where you know there's real risk of bodily harm and your heart hardly skips a beat um there's an issue and i think that actually contributed to my decision to leave southern florida and go to college at georgetown uh, because i knew i needed to get out of that environment and so maybe you got you got one of your points <laughs> so that that was really so it's almost it seems like there's always a catalyst whether that's created by something external that's that then triggers something internal and it seems like in this case it was really a mismatch between what you thought you should be feeling some sort of humanity or sensitivity and you weren't feeling and so in in leaving that environment do you think you were actively trying to seek something different or what were you trying to seek? Yeah, I think so. I think I'll give myself at least some credit. I think I was looking to leave that environment, whether consciously or sub subconsciously, I knew there was something wrong with that environment. Um, and I think I still believed in myself and my abilities to do s certain things of consequence and I felt that 
that environment and those groups of friends and some of the things that I was around would not serve me. And so when I started applying to colleges, the only schools I was really considering were schools that were pretty far away. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> a lot of my friends mostly stayed in Florida or didn't even go to college. So I think it was definitely a conscious decision. The other thing I would mention with respect to that experience and those types of experiences for other people to keep in mind is, I think for me, having had some of those experiences allows me to have a greater sense of humanity for others and understand that as humans, we have a tremendous amount of range, right? So when I hear about the lost boys in Africa and like child soldiers, you know, oftentimes people will think like they'll write those people off because if they were able to do the things they were doing, they have fully lost their humanity. But I like to think that there's always hope. And I actually think we all have kind of the duality within us. And it's about developing all sides and, you know, a setting which allows for the evolution of our better selves. Um, and so I don't think I would have been able to do many of the things that I've worked on over the last 20 years had I not kind of been in the trenches with real people and real issues that most of our planet is dealing with. So it, now that I can feel again, <laughs> it, it gives me a greater sense of affinity for these types of things. And to the like, to, at this point, even watching movies, certain movies, I try not to watch too much because I feel it in, like in a deep way. And it's uh, challenging because I like to be helpful and you can't help everything. And I guess that goes to your next question, but I don't know if you want me to stop or go right into it, but then, well, yeah. the what's what's implicit in all of this is that in order to do great work, you need to be able to feel sure to have that emotional sensitivity, to have that empathy. And it is a reality that there are a lot of people who are still stuck, right? Are still stuck in that emotional void, maybe haven't had that catalyst or are afraid to really look at themselves. How would you, now that you have crossed over, how would you talk to someone who may not be receptive to feeling, uh, who is like, no, I'm fine. You know, I'm, I'm making revenue, doing well. Well, you know, one of the things I actually learned at Georgetown, I remember I was part of this organization called Learning to Educate About Diversity, and they gave us training. And one of the things was the understanding that change does not typically happen overnight. And so it's super rare that you're going to have a conversation with someone and then have it lead to Eureka. Oh, Lisa, you're amazing. Thank you. <laughs> and so with the example you mentioned, you know, there are many people who are not fully connected. I don't think any of us are 100% connected. And there are many people who are not evolved at all in that regard. And so when I have conversations with that type of person, I try to come to it from a place of acceptance and gratitude and love and appreciation for who they are. I try to offer whatever insights I think they're willing and able to take in. And I also try to do so in a way that shows I understand and I've been there. And between all of those things, sometimes 
I can see some glimmers of hope. I see a, you know, a little spark. They won't, they may not necessarily say anything in the moment, but I've definitely had experiences where I've had those conversations and then some time later, the person comes back and they're like, hey, you know, by the way, that conversation we had kept, you know, ruminating in my mind and it led me to X, Y, Z. And when stuff like that happens, it's, it's super gratifying, but I don't go into it expecting it because then I'd just be setting myself up to not be happy. And that's not, that's not where I'm at right now. <laughs> well, I think of it personally as you're right that we can't make anyone change, but what hopefully you can do is hold up a mirror to show them that you could be like, there's more for you, right? If you decide that there's more. And, and I think oftentimes we are our very own limits. Yeah. We, we, we create artificial ceilings. Um, we don't allow ourselves to dream bigger and we focus on constraints. Uh, the, the what if negatives versus, you know, like what if I fail? What if I run out of money? What if it doesn't work versus the what if positives? You know, sure. what if it does work out? And, and I think even shifting that mindset is really important. And I think about the most valuable thing you can give someone is a shift in perspective. Sure. And, and that's, that's really what you, what you can do, right? Because then it has to come from them and that, that own internal motivation to do something. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you in that regard. Uh, thanks for uh, putting it in that light. Uh, definitely. Makes, yeah. makes a ton of sense. You know, one of the things that comes to mind with the way that you've positioned it is, you know, trying to share with others the fact that we're all connected. So they are representative of whoever they most admire, as well as the most challenged. And I found that by accepting that connection and understanding that it's within you, you're able to accomplish almost anything. And that speaks to part of what you said in terms of the mirror and the opportunity and taking out the ceiling. And I think it's super important. Awesome. So the work that you're doing now, um, talking about the, the ceilings and the connectedness, um, one of the things that we have in common is our desire to uh, empower overlooked, underserved communities. Um, so tell me about the work that you're doing at Ozone X and how you are creating more opportunities for those communities. Sure. You know, the work that we're doing is extremely inspiring to me. It doesn't actually feel like work. It's more or less that which I would be doing no matter what, whether I was earning an income for it or not, which makes it super gratifying. And given what we've talked about already, I think you can see where some of the inspiration comes from, kind of having been other, having been on the outside, having felt neglected and commiserating and understanding that pain and those experiences and wanting to create a solution for that. So uh, Ozone Ventures is what myself and a couple of dear colleagues have created in order to help solve for some of it. And so it's a venture fund we're looking to invest in underrepresented founders, so namely women and underrepresented minorities who are creating substantial solutions to solve something important, right? And so that's kind of the first order conversation uh, that we had. 
The next order of conversation relates to the fact that we're all very entrepreneurial. And when we do things, we want to continue to improve and we want to thrive. And so we wanted to look at the venture space from a perspective of what can we do to improve the process in all the ways that are important to us, right? So how do we make sure that it's purposeful? How do we make sure that we're increasing deal flow? How do we make sure that we're covering for our blind spots, right? Not pretending that we know everything because that's something that we find a lot in the sector. And then very importantly, how do we decrease bias in the process? And then obviously returns. How do we do all of this in a way that drives outsized returns? And as we continue to delve on that topic and think about it, we came to the idea of incorporating the use of collective expert intelligence. And literally, as we have brought that to the center of what we're doing, we found that it helps to solve for all of those items that I just mentioned. And so we're super, uh, we're super excited about it. Um, we started the fund last year. Uh, there have been about 28 investments made using the process that, you know, small investments, 100 grand using corporate partner capital, stuff like that, just to see how the, how the companies perform relative to the traditional approach. And when you look at up rounds within 12 to 18 months, Right, so the typical angel investor, it's about 10% of their investments have an up round in 12 to 18 months. Uh, top quartile venture, it's usually about 20 to 25% of their investments have an up round and raise more capital in 12 to 18 months. With this cohort of 28, it's been more like 83%. So you're looking at a factor of four to eight X on a relative basis. Now it's not definitive that it's gonna be amazing, but it's a very good indicator. And then when you dig in, something that I'm sure you'd appreciate is those 28 companies, about 45% of the founders are women, half are minority, and that's without a filter looking for that, right? It's, it was just looking to test the assumptions around using the collective to make the best investment decisions possible from a return perspective. Now, what this says to us is talent and expertise are broadly distributed. I'm sure you knew that. I definitely knew that but the markets have not been operating as if they realized that, right? So up to this point, it's been about 3% of capital that has gone towards back in women, a little less, and even less going towards underrepresented minorities. So you're talking more than significantly, more than half of the population getting less than 6% of the capital. And when you look at the facts, you realize that there are just as many opportunities from that set of people and so for us as a business, so on the one hand, we're like, amazing, it's the right thing to do, you know my past, so it would just make sense that I would want to do that. But then from a business perspective, it's just basic economic, mm. right? Like, there's less capital in a sector where there are just as many, if not more deals. According to BCG, they perform even better than, you know, women perform better than men in terms of return. And so that's an area that we want to go in and really employ our strategy in order to drive value for all members of the ecosystem. And so for me and, and my team, uh, we're super invigorated and we're looking forward to pushing forward. We're, you know, now raising the first fund of committed capital. And the vision is five to 10 years out, 
we'd like to be the default version of what VC should be. Uh, and we expect others uh, will follow suit over time, but we want to be kind of at that forefront of change because it's, it's necessary. Um, I could go on for a lot longer, but I'm not going to do that to you. So. Well, it seems like the, I mean, the real thing that you're working towards is eliminating the natural bias um, that, that comes as a result of uh, people pitching investors. Um, everyone does have unconscious biases embedded in them. The thing that for me is always that it seems like we are at this point where people are aware of this data. Um, there's been plenty of reports that talk about the lack of funding for women um, and then reports that then combat that and say, well, uh, women-led companies perform better over time. Um, there's a there's a different approach to leadership. And the, the fact of the matter is the data is out there, but the change is really slow. Sure. Um, what do you think actually needs to happen um, and how are you guys addressing it? Sure. Um, so everything you said, ditto, I agree with you. Um, I think we need to have more winners, right? We need to have more examples of where capital is being deployed, returns are being had, and there are successes. And one success is going to lead to another, and there's going to be less hesitation. Uh, so I think that's what's going to happen. And I think to your point around the fact that the facts speak for themselves is true and that also speaks to the fact that, you know, the status quo rarely looks to change something that works in their interests, right? So if something works for me, even if I think and I see facts that suggest something else can also be good, it's rare that I'm gonna, you know, eat my own child, if you will, and come out with the new thing. And so I think that's part of what's happening as well. And, you know, I think it's just a matter of time and I think there's gonna be kind of a Gladwellian tipping point that needs to be reached, at which point you'll see the floodgates open and there'll be more investments uh, with women and minority founders. And, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic that the situation we're in right now uh, with Corona and COVID is going to lead to a greater sense, not just for humanity, but even sheer performance, right? So a lot of people have lost their money. <laughs> and irrespective of irrational sentiments, they're gonna need to drive real returns. And so they're gonna have a need to look at the facts and, and start taking steps that are gonna uh, create value, you know, whether it's for their pensioners at the pension funds or for you know, their limited partners in the fund of funds. So I think you're going to start seeing more of that given the environment that we're currently in. Mm. One of the discussions that I've been having recently is around this need for us to label, you know, male, female, uh, black, white, and talking about we know that we've actually succeeded when you don't have to say female CEO and you can just say CEO or we don't need a headline that says, Black female founder raises <laughs> X amount of money, and it's just a founder of this incredible company raises this amount of money. Um, how do you think about that conversation and the shift into almost a, a genderless society where we don't have to do that, or just one mm -hmm. one race where we're all human? 
the post-race, post-gender. <laughs> um, I think that's an important conversation. I've been on both sides of that at different times. Last time I've spent time actually thinking about it, I netted to the fact that I have two sets of books. So I have one that I consider to be real and one that I consider to be practical, which is the world we live in. And to me, it's important to have both. And so for me, the real world, what I consider to be real is there's only one human race that's scientific. It's, it's kind of like the returns that we were talking about. It's, you know, there's one human race, there are multiple. And I know you're probably classified as Asian and I'm classified as black, but we probably have more in common with each other than you have with some Asian people and vice versa, right? So that's the fact. Um, and I think for our sanity and just to be rooted in truth, it's important to acknowledge that. With that being said, we live in a very unjust world and society. And so if we only acknowledge that, then we're susceptible to not live very long and to have serious issues because we'll just be completely thrown off by the ugliness of the society we live in relative to gender or race or any number of other isms, if you will. And so I don't think we're gonna have the post-gender or post-race world in my lifetime. And I'm an optimist. <laughs> I hope that I'm wrong and that would be amazing. What I will say is I think the next generation is actually more progressive in that regard than we are. And I'm hopeful that that's gonna to continue to be the case. But what I found is whenever there are limited resources, people tend to gravitate towards systems that serve them. Mm -hmm. Even when they know it's wrong or not real or anything else that we wanna say. And those are the instances where I just don't see us getting past anytime soon and kind of going back to this corona covid environment you know i've seen instances where there are communities and people that literally have hoarded supplies that could have gone to save lives mm -hmm. and it's kind of like who does that you only do that if you think you're somehow better than everyone else and more deserving than others like that that type of behavior doesn't come from our highest selves um, and for me, that's disconcerting. And I think that ties back to the conversation around race and gender. Um, I can definitely go in deeper, but suffice it to say that it's super tough. You know, people are dying, like literally for no good reason. Uh, the justice system, I mean, there's so many <laughs> places that we can tackle it. So it's economics, it's justice, and every sector is embedded in much of, you know, the Western society and even developing countries. So for me, it's super challenging, A. B, I like to think that these challenges are part of what makes life beautiful, if you will, the journey. So it's about figuring out how we can lend ourselves to making improvements and helping to you know, make adjustments and leaving the world a little bit better than how we found it. Uh, with the understanding that there's probably always going to be significant challenges and race and gender are among them and you know whatever i can do to be helpful 
I'm trying. Yeah. Well, it seems like there's, for me, there's three values that really come out of that and it's respect, abundance, and connection. Okay. If you, if you have respect for yourself and for others, if you come from a place of abundance rather than scarcity and thinking that things are going to run out and there's it's a zero sum game. And then from there, if you're able to really connect and empathize with people, that's, that's, that's really how you get to a place where you're one human race. But the reality is, you know, we're, st- we're still in a society where people are coming from scarcity, we're disconnected and we don't respect each other. <laughs> unfortunately um when push comes to shove yeah it's a net net it's it's horrible i'm sure we've all had instances where people that we considered friends when push comes to shove show themselves as being something different and you know those types of experiences are painful Mm. um and you know hopefully humanity collectively can move beyond that but a lot of work needs to be done well, given that, how do you stay optimistic with the challenges that come your way, with the seemingly never-ending problems that one has to solve? I think every leader does experience points of fatigue, sure. wondering if their work is worth it. So I'm curious about some of your strategies. Absolutely. I've come to find that over time, I've definitely developed more and more strategies. <laughs> I'd say from a, to put it in perspective, how I've started describing myself is each day is like a lifetime. So I start my day as an infant, newborn, and I'm super excited. And then as the day progresses, I pour it out, I go, I go, I go, I go. And by the time the day is over, I have literally nothing left. And I say this, and I'm not sure if you appreciate how real I'm being, but literally, if we're together for an entire day, you'll see that process. And by the time it's over, my body just starts to shut down. I have zero left. And that's just how I I live my life. And at the start of the days, I have a, a number of activities, habits that I've developed which I think also help with that, with that jumpstart. So it's, you know, my daily meditation, it's my breathing, exercising, it's chi, it's usually some kind of physical activity. And typically if I do all of those things, or at least some subset of them, I just get that charge and the meditation helps me to connect, you know, in my heart and soul, I feel like, it allows me to connect to all that was, is, and will be. So I'm like super powerful and ready. And then, you know, I take that through the day. And to your point, there are definitely days that are tougher than others. And I think if I didn't have this mechanism for recharging, then I would take one day into the next day that it adds on. But that actually doesn't happen with me. I sleep really well. <laughs> and then I do my kind of practices and I start each day new and I do what I told you before, which is forgive. I forgive others, I forgive myself. And I found that to be incredibly rewarding. Um, I've actually found, I have many friends who probably don't know some of the things I just told you on this. So because of my countenance, 
they assumed that I had an easy childhood and my life's always been good and that's the only way that can explain uh, how I am. But the reality is many of the challenges I've had, I feel like I've only been able to get through because of you know, some of these practices I have. And I often literally consider that and I say, it's a good thing this isn't happening to someone else and I wouldn't wish it on anyone else because it's tough. Um, and you know, I feel like oftentimes we're given burdens based on what we can handle. And you know, I'm grateful for, for it all. Uh, one example I'll provide to you in terms of how, I mean, sometimes it's almost like there's a disconnect between my reality and how I feel, but I'm happy that I'm on this side of it and not the other. Um, so in 2011, I had shoulder surgery. It had been a long-standing injury, uh, rotator cuff, capsule, all this stuff. And so they told me that I couldn't do anything for five to six months. So no push-ups, no sit-ups, no running, no nothing. And as you can tell, as I'm speaking with you, I'm moving. I like to move. <laughs> that was painful. And even more painful is after shoulder surgery and back surgery, it's painful to sleep. So I don't know if you've ever not been able to sleep for an extended period of time, but you know, three, four weeks into that, it's literally worse than death. And so that's what I was experiencing. It was horrible. And I remember catching myself as I was walking out saying, ah, oh, this is an amazing day. That's what was going through my mind. And it was kind of like that other instance I told you before where I'm like, what's, what's wrong with you? How can you think it's an amazing day when really you feel horrible? But I think where I net out on this stuff is I have a great deal of gratitude for the smallest things in life. If I'm breathing, that's a gift. If I can lean on this table, that's a gift. And so that allows me to just appreciate and be grateful for, for what I have. And um, so those are among the kind of tricks, if you will, that I've developed over time. And I'm sure there's much more. So I'm constantly looking to refine and build and develop. So if you have some ideas, I'd be happy to bring them in. Well, I like the, I like the idea of rebirth every day. I think that it's very easy to wake up and live in the past immediately. What didn't we finish yesterday? What challenges are still left? Why is this person still not responding to me? <laughs> um, why haven't I closed the sale yet? Why haven't I closed the funding yet? Um, yeah, so it's very easy to start your day like that, um, simultaneously thinking about anxiety of the future. Why am I not as far along as I thought I would be? And, and so it's this idea of starting with a clean slate, I think is really important. And I also really like the concept of uh, counting your blessings. And it, it goes to what one of my, my spiritual teachers had told me the first time I approached her and she said, there's only three reasons why people are unhappy. And she said, number one is because they blame other people for their problems. Number two is because they don't know what they want. And number three is because they don't count their blessings. And she looked at me and she's like, you, you don't have a problem with number one or number two. You know what you want. You take full responsibility for your challenges, but I think you got to get better at counting your blessings. So I think even for me, looking back at uh, failures, looking back at really difficult situations is to your point, it, it does, it shapes exactly who you are now. It gives you that stronger backbone and 
um, helps you become a more powerful and empathetic leader. Yeah, it sounds like you have a very good uh, spiritual teacher. <laughs> and it's funny because I remember uh, when I got a black belt in Hapkido, it was an eight-hour physically grueling exam that you can't possibly prepare for. But after we were done with that, the grandmaster said the last thing he wants us to do is a gratitude exercise. And it involved 112 gratitude vows each of which had three parts. So literally bowing, kneeling, bowing back up, that was one. And every time you're giving thanks for something. And I think the more you're, you go on that journey and you speak with different people, and whether you read it or you're just told to do it like we were, there's a reason that the highest level of so many things, gratitude comes in. Um, and I've become a huge, believer in the value of being grateful and I don't take it for granted. Awesome. Well, this has been a very powerful interview. Thank you so much for being open and vulnerable and sharing your leadership lessons. I'd like to ask you just two more questions. One is what's one book that you would recommend to aspiring or current leaders um, that you think could really help them? Hmm. I have a long list of books. And it's funny, it's kind of like if you ask me what song, it really just depends on what comes to mind in the moment. Yeah. And in this moment, the book that came to mind was Nelson Mandela, Long Walk to Freedom. And I think there's something to be said about appreciating the journey that someone like that went on to lead the life and have the impact that he had in his lifetime and in the future. And I think if somebody reads such a book with an open mind, there are so many parallels to being a true authentic leader in the business world as well. Um, so that's the book that comes to mind right now, even though I've probably read two business books in the last month, <laughs> but they didn't come to mind when you asked that question. So. And what's one micro action or challenge that you would issue to the audience that they could do immediately after this episode? Well, I would tie it back to much of what we discussed here and say, take some time in the next day to articulate your gratitude for people in your world, people you love, people who love you. And if you want to stretch and take it a step further, also express gratitude and share it with people who have wronged you, who have been challenging. Because the reality is through their actions, they have allowed you the opportunity to become an even better version of yourself. And through your gratitude and articulating that, you're actually relieving yourself of a great burden because carrying feelings of hatred and such challenges is literally the weight that we carry. And so that would be the challenge that I would have uh, for anyone that, that watches this. Awesome. Very last question. 
What does it mean to you to be a man? <sighs> what does it mean to be a man? You know, I feel like that's a subject that's evolved substantially for me. And so at this point in time in my life, I feel that being a man is about being accepting. It's about being vulnerable. It's about being connected to my full self. It's about embracing the feminine within me. Um, I like to think that I'm post-gender. I know I said the world is not, but in my truest self, I feel like the term has probably passed its useful you know, shelf life, if you will. And so for me, being a man is just being true to our true nature. And it's about um, understanding that we're constantly evolving and making room and space to become better. And then it's about sharing that which we know. So kind of in a nutshell, that's how I see it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Lisa. Um, as you know, I've always had tremendous respect for who you are, what you represent, the work that you do. And I want you to know that I thoroughly enjoyed uh, this conversation with you. I feel that you have a great deal of dexterity and mastery uh, when it comes to making someone feel comfortable in these types of conversations and accessing information that might otherwise be sensitive, mm. but creating a, a safe space uh, for it to flow. And so thank you for inviting me to participate in your podcast and uh, definitely consider me to be uh, a lifetime friend that you can count on uh, to be supportive in any way that I can. So thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Take good care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. If you're ready to level up in your career and become a more powerful and purposeful leader, head over to theglow.org forward slash leadership to join our executive leadership training program. Again, that's T-H-E-G-L-O-W.org forward slash leadership to join today. You can find me at Lisa Carmen Wang on all social channels and lisacarmenwang.com. Never forget, you are enough. You are powerful. Now go out there and change the world.